chapter 14, pretty famous story, and uh, we'll get straight into it. I'm reading from the NASB, so one or two words may differ if you're using a less inspired copy. (laughs) Okay, Matthew 14, from verse 14. Sorry, Matthew. Did I say Mark? Matthew. Matthew 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, The place is desolate. The hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me, ordering the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately... Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, said to him, you little faith, why did you doubt? Father, thank you so much for the joy of singing your praise together. Thank you, Lord, that that's our common desire. Thank you for the privilege of standing shoulder to shoulder with men and women who count it their joy to sing your praise and magnify you. Lord, we could be in darkness and ignorance. We could be far off. Instead, we find ourselves in your family, knowing who's running the universe, calling you Father, having the excitement of faith in our hearts for fruitfulness. God, what privileges you've lavished on us, Father. Lord, we come, Lord. And Father, I ask you for this company that you delight in, that your Holy Spirit might be upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Please come, be our teacher. Rest upon us, anoint our ears to hear, 
our hearts to hear, our courage to rise up. Lord, please do stuff in our hearts as we're before you right now, Father. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus' ministry is growing. Multiplied crowds are pressing in to hear him so that up to 5,000 are listening with him, staying with him. And 5,000 men, it says, uh, with women and children, D.A. Carson suggests that it might be 20,000 people that are with Jesus at this time. And he's done phenomenal things. And uh, he is not shaped by the excitement of the crowd. His ministry is not shaped by the euphoria. He's got a very clear focus on what he's doing. He's giving himself specially to 12 whom he's shaping to form a new community on planet Earth. So a little bit of popularity doesn't sway him from his vision. He's very clear what he wants to do. He's laying the foundations of a new community. And these 12 are the ones in his focus specially. So Jesus has his eye on them, and he's in the midst of a training program for them. He's getting them ready for the privilege of being the foundations of what he's going to do in the earth that will rise up from there. Jesus walked along by the sea one day called Peter, James, John, Andrew. Think of that, four guys walking along the sea. That's the beginning of the universal church that will grow. And Jesus gives himself to these guys. He's shaping them, he's forming them. And the chapter we've read together is part of their training program. And in it, he sends them into a storm. He sends them into a scary situation. He soon will be taken from them. He will soon be out of their sight and they will be confronting the Sanhedrin, telling them no longer to preach in this name. Telling these northern fishermen who don't know much about the big city as they stand with their huge authority as uh, the, 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 the authority of the Jerusalem, you shall no longer speak. Here's the storm. They're hitting a storm. Where's Jesus? He's not here. Here's a training program. He goes up into the mountain to pray. He sends them into a storm. He is shaping them. I went to Bible college, and uh, you know, you turned over the page to see what was next on the uh, program, and it was kind of Greek or church history. Uh, you definitely never turned the page and said storm. Uh, you know, <laughs> tomorrow's lesson: terrifying storm. It doesn't say that. I, ne- I never had that, but that did come later. Okay, <laughs> and uh, you get storms on the way. And we're going to see as we go on here that to be in a storm does not mean you've lost the will of God. And to follow Jesus wholeheartedly does not guarantee that you miss storms from now on. Storm is on the horizon. Storm is in the plan of God. This is what we're looking at together. And Jesus is focusing on training and shaping these 12. That's his goal. That's his objective. And you think, well, why, why are we in this storm? Sometimes you get into some pressure. It may be this morning you've come here and, uh, you know, we're greeting one another. It's good to see you. How's it going? Oh, it's fine, thanks, fine, thanks. Sometimes in our hearts it's not always so fine. Sometimes it's pressure. Sometimes we think, God, can I really live up to what other people expect of me? There are all reasons for hitting storms. You can get some disloyalty. You can get some financial pressure. You can get all sorts of things that create storms. So here, let's see why Jesus sent them into the storm. First of all, the situation actually was very dangerous for them. 
Why do I say that? Well, Jesus is growing in popularity. He is beginning to be recognized by some as maybe the promised Messiah. Maybe uh, this son of David who has been promised, the one who will suddenly come on the scene and change everything and establish the Jewish eternal kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Could he be the one we've been waiting for? They asked John the Baptist, are you the one? He said, no, no, I'm not that one. They're looking for this one who will come. And uh, the marks of this one is that he'll, like David, came on the scene, another like David. Well, so their expectation was fairly political because David took on the Philistines and wiped them out. First Goliath, then he becomes a king and commands victory. And there's a promise that another one will come. He'll sit on David's throne and he'll introduce an amazing kingdom. So surely he's going to smash the Romans. Surely he's going to establish their royal position. And the apostles were pretty happy about this. They were quite excited to be in on that deal. And uh, so you find them saying, uh, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can I sit on the right? Can I sit on the left? You know, even get one of their mothers coming along. Uh, Jesus, can my boy sit on your right? Can your, my boy sit on your left? You know, this is a really good deal. And, uh, and Jesus has just, just fed thousands supernaturally. And it says in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, another one like me will come. And uh, the mark of this one is he, he'll be like me. Well, they say Moses fed the multitudes in the desert. And, uh, you know, Jesus can do this. So, you know, he is the one. And, and, and he's beginning to assume a position in their eyes. May, could, could he be the one? Could he be the one? And interestingly, if you look at Ju- John's account of the same story, it says in John 6, verse 15, intending to come and take him and make him king. The crowd are going to force their agenda on Jesus. They're going to take him and make him king. They're going to make this thing happen. Now, Jesus can handle that. Jesus can walk away from crowds. Uh, The apostles, not so much. It's like, yeah, you want to make him king? Go on, make him king. And we're with him. We're with him. We're here. Yeah, come on, we'll come with him into his reign. That's the situation they're in. And so it says, Jesus, it says in the margin of Matthew 14, 22, he compelled them into the boat. In other words, guys, you don't realize how dangerous this is for you. The storm may look dangerous later, but this quick promotion is even more dangerous for you. You don't even understand the the message. You don't understand the journey. You don't understand the way it's going to take for me to come to that throne. You don't understand the nature of the kingdom. Uh, He doesn't explain all that, so I just get in the boat. And uh, he just pushes them. He compels them. And then he goes away by himself to pray. And those phrases, just by himself alone, he's gone into prayer. Sometimes when we feel things are going wrong, we don't necessarily see the whole picture. We don't see what God is saving us from. We may feel the intensity of the pressure we're going through, but we don't really understand why. We don't always have to know why, but he knew what he was doing and was saving them from something they were unable to handle. See, God often has a plan in our lives which we don't all understand straight away. Uh, He wants to shape us. He wants to take us through to accomplish something he's after. He's got goals for your life and mine. 
He's got more ambition for us than we have for ourselves. I'm persuaded of that. He's very motivated to make us successful. He chose us. We didn't choose him. He's got plans in his heart. But he knows the danger areas. And so you find this sort of thing repeated again and again. I remember years ago reading a book by a man called Alan Redpath on the life of David, and he called it The Making of a Man of God. It's a vivid title, The Making of a Man of God. You can see someone saved in a moment. Making a man or a woman of God takes a little longer and often includes process. So David, for instance, bursts on the scene as a young lad. He's just brought a picnic for his brothers who are in the army and sees Goliath, and we know the story, takes him out. And suddenly he's a national hero, overnight, national hero. And uh, Saul brings him into his palace, brings him into his army. He's, he's made a captain of the army. Uh, he's kind of swishing around the palace. And uh, the girls are singing. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. And David's saying, that's right, girls, I did. And you look pretty special. And, and you don't look bad. And uh, I'm the guy. And, uh, you know, all looks pretty good. And he's the one, he's the anointed and God's with me, and uh, hi, and, uh, <laughs> and then suddenly spears are being thrown at him. And you think, well, what's that all about? I've only been loyal to Saul. It's not like I've ever tried to usurp anything. In fact, you look at David's life, his attitudes, his integrity towards Saul is exemplary. Absolutely refused to throw the spear back, he refused, but he is persecuted out until he's, well, he's in a cave now. He's in a cave. He used to swish through palaces as a great captain. Now he's in a cave with a group of guys who are on their beam ends. You know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm in debt. Oh, great. You know, this is, you think, what happened to him? Well, God's shaping him, actually. God's shaping him. At one point, he says, one day I'll die at the hands of Saul. You know, he really does hit a low. One day I will die at the hands of someone. It took a Jonathan to come alongside him and say, no, 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 God's got plans for you. But he knew what it was to hit the bottom. David, this great man of God, he knew what it was like. Then you think of Joseph. <laughs> Joseph, he sees a vision. He's still young, he's immature. He sees a vision. His brothers all bowing down to him, even his parents bowing down to him. I've seen a vision. He's a real charismatic. I've had a dream. I've seen a vision. <laughs> And, uh, and this is what's going to happen, guys. You're all going to bow down to me. <laughs> you know, he's a real adolescent. He's really a pretty obnoxious guy. But he's had an authentic call of God. It's authentic. But the next thing happens, what well, we all know, he's in a hole in the ground. Then he's in Egypt. He said, what am I doing here? But his attitude's brilliant, actually. God's shaping him. It says he was a successful man. Incredible. To be successful means you're not thinking, you ratbags, you, you did this, you cruel brothers. Or he's not thinking, one of these days I'll get out of here. He's, he's successful in prison. He's successful in part of his home. The, the, the screw is turned even tighter. It's really, really hard. He's lied against his character. Thrown into prison. It's like every step is taking him further and further away from the will of God. Except, actually, every step it's taking him closer. It's only going to take one more dream and he's in Pharaoh's home. But outwardly, it looks a complete disaster. Outwardly, you think, how can my brothers bow down to me? 
I'm in another nation, another language. Are they still alive? I mean, the, the dream, the original promise, but he says, I love it when he's in prison, and, it, and the guy comes in prison, and he says, I had a dream. And Joseph says, tell me your dream. I love that. You see, if I was Joseph, I think I'd say, I used to have dreams. Forget dreams. <laughs> That's how I got here. I had a dream. Now, see, the guy, the guy stayed a genuine charismatic. He genuinely believes in the supernatural. <laughs> see, he believes in the supernatural. He believes, he hangs on. And he's, actually, it's his charismatic gift that gets him out of prison. Pharaoh has a dream. I understand you can understand, no, no, but God can. And he's still in touch with God. The man is being shaped through pressure. He shapes through pressure. And sometimes we go through things, we think, what's happening to me? And I don't understand what's happening to me. But God's got a plan for us. And sometimes we're more focused on our ministry and God's more focused on character. Can I trust this person with ministry? Can I trust them with influence? Can I trust them with a voice? And so God's at work. And, and when he calls you, you're his responsibility. He says, follow me. He's, he's got a heart, he's got a program far more specific than any Bible college curriculum. He's got a program for us. And sometimes it hurts because he's after things. So let's just see it's planned pressure. He sends them into the storm. So can I repeat it? Being in a storm is no proof you've lost the will of God. You receive that this morning? You think, God, it's so difficult at the moment. I've lost the... No, no, no. I've not lost... They're right in the center of God's will. And secondly, obedience to Christ does not guarantee a storm-free life. If I, obey, if I obey Jesus, I'll never hit... No, no, no. You're right obeying Jesus. And you're right in it. So let's just look at it briefly. That was, it was painful. It was... In the middle of the lake, it says, the storm hit. It's not when they just begin to get into the lake. It's not like, hey, hey let's get out of this. Because, uh, you know, we can see a storm coming. You know, we were going to go to the beach. Hey, look at the clouds. Let's not bother. No, no they're right in. And uh, the, mar the lake is 13 miles long, seven and a half miles wide, and there's no easy way out. You can't end it. Sometimes we want to just pull the plug. We change it. I'll get out of here. I'll change this job, I'll, change, I'll leave this ministry, I'll go to another one. I'll leave this marriage, I'll go to another one. We're in a world that says, get out of it. They can't get out of it. It's the, the easy option is not there for them. They're in it. I don't feel like me, but I think it's a male sickness that the remote kind of stays in my hand when we're watching television. You think, this is what's... This is an advert. Ah, oh, it's changed channels. I can't stand this. This is terrible. My wife would say, can't we say that? No, it's changed. You know, let's get out of this program. And we live in a world, let's change. Let's get out of this. Let's do something better. You can't, they can't get out of it. And sometimes you feel that. It's beyond our control. Or because of finance, because of my sick children, because of my elderly parents, all sorts of things. You can't do anything about it. You're stuck. And here they are, they're stuck they can't walk away. And then it says the wind was against them. It was contrary. It was hostile. And, and, and circumstances become hostile. They can't relax. They can't drift or they'll be blown onto the rocks. They've got to keep going. Sometimes you get into that. 
Sometimes you say, well, I've got to do this job and that job because if we don't, we go under financially. But isn't life hard? Yeah, I know it's hard, but I've got, I can't stop. I've got to do both. And we've got to do that. And sometimes you feel, wow, this is difficult. The pressure's on. I'll be blowing blackwoods if I don't. And it says this, they were straining at the oars. And the margin of the Bible I read to you says this, they were harassed in rowing. They were straining. It was inside. Verse 24 says they were battered by the waves. And in the, again, literally in the margin, it says they were tormented. The word battered, it's got this root of tormented. Same word that's used about demon possession, tormented. And sometimes you do feel the storm's got out of the lake, it's got in here. And sleep becomes difficult. And you, if the thing keeps going round and round, you're being tormented by it. It can be a pressure. These guys are being tormented in the midst of it. The storm is on the inside. They're in difficulty. Now, those sort of things happen to the servants of God. And notice this is fairly prolonged. It's not over in a moment. All these psalms have this cry that comes out, How long, O oh Lord? And you can go through things like that. How long is this going to last? Can't we stop this? When are you going to change these circumstances? Because he comes to them, it says, on the fourth watch, which apparently is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So he sent them into the lake, presumably late afternoon, and it's, it's between 3 and 6 before he comes to them. So the darkness has come to them, but he hasn't come to them. They're in real, real pressure. Now, it's interesting. Later on, Peter, who's in this boat, when he's been instructed and trained up as a great apostle, he writes things like this in First Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's part of our problem, that we're surprised. Where did this come from? I'm trying to follow Jesus. Why is it like this? We're surprised. We're surprised. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's like standing in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson and saying, he hit me, he hit me. You want to say, well, you're lucky he didn't bite your ear off. (laughs) That's it. We're, We're in a battle, okay? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Peter's going to face that with the Sanhedrin. Don't preach anymore in this name. You're going to face that even when he's denying Jesus. He's going to go through fiery trials. He later writes, as someone who's been through the fires, he writes as a pastor, an apostle over many believers, don't be surprised. He's saying out of his experience, don't be surprised. When you meet various trials, as though some strange thing were happening. No, 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 don't see it like that. Again, he says in 1 Peter, now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. These have come... that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may prove genuine, may result in praise and glory and honor. See, God's at work when we are going through these kind of pressures. Paul talks about this momentary light affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Sometimes it's pressure. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're at the mercy of other people's actions that you feel, I'm not sure that's fair. That's how it was with Joseph. You know, Joseph could say, look, these, you did it out of envy. Said, well, that's the cause of it. 
It was your, your sin put me through this. Your envy made this happen to me. But he also says this, God meant it for good. God sent me ahead to save life. He looks beyond. And that's what God wants us to do. Look beyond the immediate. Stop attaching responsibility to people's sin and look to a sovereign God who's ordering our steps. Amen? Beloved, that's what God wants from us. To trust a sovereign God who's behind the events, the surface events that happen to us. So, no, God, you're in this. You called me, I'm yours. We're in his hands. God wants to do stuff in us. Some years ago, I was preaching at what we called the Stonely Bible Week, and uh, it was at a time when the Spirit was moving very, very powerfully, and uh, I, felt, I felt God drew me to uh, the verse in Isaiah, which says, he made me a polished arrow. And uh, I was looking at what is an arrow. It's about putting me in his quiver and all the rest of it. So there's quite a lot to the word, but there was one point that I was making that, a, that an arrow... Uh, used to be part of a tree and it gets cut out of what it used to be in order to take on a new identity. And I have to testify that as uh, my conversion, I stayed in my tree, if I can use that illustration. I was like a branch in a tree. And I was ex- introduced to Jesus from a completely non-Christian background. I, I, I had no idea. I've never been... Uh, my parents were not believers. I had no Christian background. My sister went to London... Billy Graham, she got saved, came home, said, you can ask Jesus into your heart. You can have all your sins forgiven. You can know you're going to heaven. I argued, how can you know? But I suddenly knew it was true. You know, that I'm born again. I was born again. And I asked Jesus into my heart. It's like I said to all the other idols, move over, Jesus is coming in. I didn't change anything. I just kept doing the same old stuff, worshipping the same old idols. But I'd asked Jesus in as well. And I was a mess. I was saved, but I was a mess. For four years, total mess. Until one day, on a Sunday morning in church, for the first time, God just nailed me. And I suddenly knew the fear of God. And I I knew I had to give my life to God. I felt God say, I want your life. I thought, wow, your life. And and I I made a decision. I thought, well, my life is a mess anyway. I said, well, you, you want it, you have it. I mean, honestly, I was very low. I was experiencing that mess. And I thought, well, okay, it's no big deal. Okay, if you want this life. I really felt that I want it, and I want it now. And it was like, come out of that tree. See, I think when you stay in the tree, see, Jesus said to the disciples, follow me. They left their nets and followed him. Said to Abraham at the beginning, come to a place I'll show you. So he left the Ur of the Chaldees and went on a journey. It's a kind of come out from and I realized that that's what happens to an arrow. It gets, it has to, if you don't get cut out from, you can never be. I mean, imagine saying to a branch, how do you like to fly? What's flying? How about speed through the air? What's speed through the air? How about hitting a target? What's a target? You can't even relate. You have to come out to come to experience. It's you, but you take on a new identity. You've got potential for all kinds of new experiences. And so, I mean, I, I just had this whole thing. I preached it, and I, I preached it at our Bible week, a much broader thing, and I preached it subsequently in Kansas City. And a guy came up to me in Kansas City. He said, I liked your sermon. I said, thank you very much. He said, I make arrows. That's my job. So I thought, I thought you might be interested in this. He said, when we got the branches 
we take them and we cut off the leaves and the twigs and stuff. Then he said, we put them in a machine that has kind of troughs. You lay each one in a trough. And then we put water through these channels. Then we put the lid down and then we turn the heat up. He said, I thought you might be interested. I said, tell me more. He said, he said we know exactly how long to leave them in the heat. He said, if we take them out too quickly and we try to scrape off the coating over each branch, if it's not been on long enough, we're in danger of cutting into the branch, cutting into, damaging the arrow. He said, if we leave it in too long, the central wood just begins to mush up. We lost it. So he said, we know exactly how long to leave them in the heat. I feel that God would say that to you this morning. I know exactly how long to leave you in the heat. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm after. I'm a master builder. It says in Ephesians 2, we're his workmanship. His work of art. He's, he's doing something. He's making something. And so when you get into heat and storm and pressure, it's important that you understand that God knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing. And, and the next thing you do see is this, that Jesus saw them in the storm. Because that's the other thing that Satan wants to say, God doesn't know what you're going through. And if he did, he doesn't care. That's Satan wants to attack the character and ability of God. That's why he's trying to undermine your view of God. God doesn't know. But the whole story is saying this. Now, Jesus went up into the mountain and he saw. Now, that is speaking of supernatural sight. I don't think there's any floodlights over Galilee. He's up in the mountain. As I said earlier, it's like a lesson. He's going up into the heavens while they're going into the storm, which soon is going to happen. Soon he will be taken into heaven. They will be in the storms. They're learning. It's a learning process. So he's in the heavens, as it were, and he sees them. He sees them. And uh, it's a wonderful thing in, in uh, Hebrews and in chapter 4. Let me just read you familiar words. It says in Hebrews 4, we, uh, no creature, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything's open. Everything's laid bare. Nothing, it's not out of his view. That when the storm gets out of the lake into our hearts and we're feeling the storm, we feel the storm's inside now, he's all laid bare. It's not like he doesn't know about it. He's, everything is open and laid bare with him. The next verse says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's gone up the mountain <laughs> to pray and he's the, he, we can hold fast our confession. He sees what's happening. Our great priest is through the heavens. He's ever living to intercede for us. Jesus is there. He's praying for them on the mountain. And then you see this extraordinary thing. He comes to them. And I just want us to notice this. He comes to them before they cry out. He's coming to them. He's walking toward them. And of course, we get this breathtaking miracle that he walks on the water. And, uh, you know, he's in the mountain 
And, and we know that once for the Mount of Transfiguration, he was transfigured before them. In other words, his divinity became shining out. The supernatural nature of who he is is there on display. And Peter says, we, we're eyewitnesses to the majesty. I wonder how often that happened when there was nobody around. He's just with his father in the, in the mountain. Anyway, he came down, and this very God, he just walks on the sea, walks on the storm. And as he gets closer, they see something. And they think, it's a ghost! And they, they're more scared of Jesus coming to help them than they are of the storm. Jesus is coming, and they're terrified. They scream out. And it's this God walking on the water toward them, and he shouts out, don't be scared, it's I. And many of you will know what is in the text is, ego, I, me. And uh, that's emphatic. It's, you don't need to say ego. I, me, the Greek word I, me, means I am. When you, when you put the ego in, it's emphatic and it's reminding us who we're talking about. I am that I am. And Jesus often used that language when he said things like, I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth. Ego, I, me. And uh, even said things like this, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. He's, got, he's saying this God thing. I am coming to you in your storm. The living God, nothing less than, not some clever prophet, not a bit of a healer. It's the living God coming to us in our storm. You get a revelation of God in a storm that you wouldn't have anywhere else. How many people could say this? I met Jesus more in the pain than I met him anywhere else. He came to them. He came to them. And the amazing thing is, you know, if you're grammatically correct, you have to say, yes, I, I am. Don't fear, it is I. For most of us, we use more colloquial English and we say things like, don't be scared, it's me. It's me. And this is the wonder of the Christian experience that the great I am kind of gets into our boat and says, it's me. And you know him. I love that what it says in Timothy, great is the mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. And John can write in his <coughs> epistle, the life was manifested. We handled. <laughs> the, the great I am becomes it's me. He's intimate with us. He's our friend. And we're not talking about our power. We're talking about the creator of all things. And he comes to them where they are. He comes into the boat and he's there for them, with them. Don't be scared. I am. Then let me just pick up the last thing in the story we read together. Where Peter, seeing him on the waves, shouts out, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Now, I've been absolutely captivated by this bit, especially lately, that you think, that's amazing. See, Peter isn't presumptuous. He doesn't say, hey, it's the Lord, I'll get up. No, no, no. If it's you, tell me to come. He's already learned a few things. He's learned, I can't do it, but somehow, if he says it, I can. He's learned this. Being around Jesus brings you into a life of possibilities that you never dreamed of. You start living, living around Jesus. You don't feel a load of religion being pushed at you. You don't feel a load of, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. I'm reading through Leviticus myself at the moment. It's pretty hard work. 
Uh, here you meet Jesus, who is not telling you, no, not this, not that, not that. He's saying, I'll bring you into a life you never dreamed possible. It's like he's just said to them, they said, Lord, they're hungry, they've been with us three days now and nights, uh, send them away, and Jesus says, you feed them. Hmm? No, you feed them. Come on, we've got five loaves and fish, come on. No, you do it. Okay. Takes the bread, blesses it, gives it to them. You think, man alive, feed them. I can imagine, can't you? It's a bit for you. <laughs> bit for you. And you suddenly think, hey, wait a minute, what's happening? What is happening here? What is happening? Hey, have some, have some, have some. You think, wow, what am I doing? I'm living in a life of, I can't do this, but I can. You know, feed the flock of God. Oh, it comes through Friday, Sunday's coming. Oh, no, you feed them. God. No, you feed them. God, you know what little bit of stuff I've got. Come on, feed them. It's your amazement. You begin to find, hey, I can feed them. I've, I've been told to do it. <laughs> Beloved, you've been told to do it. You've been commissioned to do it. Feed them. You start feeding them. You start feeding them. Because if he says so, you can do it. And Peter's began to realize that. If he says so, I can do it. So if it's you, tell me to come. So Jesus says, come. One word. And with one word, all the power of gravity, all that we call the, the laws of nature, step aside, because the Lord has said, come. So you can walk on water now. Every other rule has to yield. Just like the Red Sea had to yield. This is God. So he steps out of the boat and he walks to where Jesus is. He walks right to a hand's length from Jesus. He walks on the water. He didn't presume. He waited for the call. When God called him, he did it. Later on, Peter will write this, Second Peter chapter 1, he has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Isn't that fantastic verse? It's translated like that in the NIV, and it's not like that in the translation I usually use. I remember reading the NIV. I was sitting at my desk one morning, and I stumbled on it. NIV. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. I thought, wow, that really hit me. I thought, you know, life is tough. Godliness, who can do it? He's given us everything we need. You can walk on water. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. And it goes on to say, through the very great and precious promises by which we escape, what? The corruption, the sinking that's in the world. We escape the sinking, we escape the corruption that's in the world and become what? Partakers of the divine nature. We're given ability to do what the divine can do. We can walk on water, we can live a new kind of life by the grace of God, by knowing Jesus, by hearing him say, walk. We live a new life. We're not just religious people trying to do better. I was in the States, there's a bumper sticker. It says, a Christian is one sinner telling another sinner where you can find bread. No. No. We are new creation. We are new, we're saints of God. There's been a huge transformation in our lives. We've become partakers of the divine nature. We have the very great and precious promises. Very great. It's not just trying hard. 
It's not just willpower. It's knowing Him and, and fellowshipping with Him and believing. This is about Abraham in Hebrews. I love that phrase. It's the man with the promises. I think, what a title is that? The man with the promises. When I get involved with a new church or anyone, I say, what promises are you living with? I love to know what promises you're living with. Has God promised you anything? Or are we just being religious together? I know the promises God made me years ago. I've been living with the promises. Abraham's called the man with the promises. <sighs> you're pretty rich, right? You've got promises from God. It's through these very precious promises. We can escape. We can walk with God. We can do a new kind of life. And it's through the storm you begin to learn it. It's beginning to see him in the midst of things. Seeing him, he can bring you through. He's the one. So seeing him, it says he, he saw him, he began to walk to him, and then you get this. Seeing the wind, well, we know what that means. He saw the results of the wind. He saw the waves. And he began to sink. He began to sink. And, and, and Jesus immediately saves him because he's Jesus' responsibility. All right, you're feeling you're sinking? You're Jesus' responsibility. How did you get on that water? He sent you there. He called you. Beloved, if you're in a storm and you're, you belong to Jesus and you know he sent you, you're his responsibility. He will not leave you there. He will not fail you. Because if he said, come, if he pushes you into a storm and then says, come, Hey, Lord, you told me to do this. You told me to do this. When I left secular work, I, I lived by faith for two years, just doing evangelism, door to door, door to door. Some people said to me, you've got a lot of faith. I said, to be honest, I'm just doing what I told. Well, I wasn't conscious of having faith. I was, I, God said, do it. And it's important if you say, no, God sent me. Some of you in new church situations with the future before you, think, wow, God sent me here. What a privilege. God's called me. God will stand with me. God will give me the fruit. He says, but he got, he looked at the waves. And then it says, Jesus got hold of him and said to him, well done. Peter, you're the only one who did it. I'm really proud of you. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, where'd you put your foot down? I know it's tough. Hey, Peter, well done. You're my hero. I'm really pleased with you. Well done, son. Whoa, terrific. Only one who had the courage. No, it doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say, doesn't say that at all. He says, where is your faith? And then he tells him off for being a little faith. He says, where, you little faith. You think, man, little faith. I walked on water. Little faith. So what's it about? Why did you doubt? And, and it's interesting, the word that he uses is the word distatso, which means, why did you look at two things? You looked at two things. It's got that word two in it. And it's like, you looked at me, but you looked at the waves. It's like, don't you think, dear friends, that if, they, if Peter had just kept his eyes on Jesus' eyes, he'd have kept walking. I would think so, wouldn't you? I would think so. He, he just, and, and, and so it's not, well done. It's, what's wrong with you? 
You think, well, did Jesus have a bad day? Did Jesus, you know, get a bit grumpy, getting grumpy? Jesus, this is Jesus at his grumpiest. All right, this is Jesus the man, not the God. No, this is perfection. This is this Jesus. Whenever Jesus spoke, it is light and truth and certainty and reality. There is never Jesus the grumpy. He is perfect. This is truth coming down from heaven. This is truth, little faith. Wow. What does that tell me? Beloved, it tells me he believes you can do it. It should give us incredible excitement. He anticipates that we can do it. And I'm always struck by that passage in Numbers, I think it's 14, where it says, they come to the promised land, and it says they see the giants, and they see the walled cities, and they say, we are not able to do this. We're like grasshoppers. And then it says, God says this, how long will these people reject me? You go, oh, no, no, we're not rejecting you. We're not even, no, 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 it's the giants. I mean, it's the giants. Look at the size of the cities. I mean, man, alive. How long will these people, different translations bring it out more, how long will these people despise me? How long will these people reject me? You go, we're not rejecting you. It's the st- I mean, look at the size of them. No, God says, you're rejecting me. What do you mean rejecting? I told you, go in and take it. So you're not taking seriously my commitment to your success. You're not taking seriously my commitment to your success. Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? R.T. Kendall says that Lloyd-Jones gave him his title for his book. He said to him, what is faith? He said, faith is believing God. Believe in God. It's not just believing. It's believing God. Why did you reject me? There's something to do with our relationship with God. And he said, come on. Come on. He's here for us. He comes to us. Why did you start looking in two places at once? Why don't you keep clear? So, beloved, that's the story. That's the account. God is making some rocks to build his city on. These are going to be foundation stones. These 12 apostles, foundational to the city of God. They're in the book of Revelation. They're named. When people get saved, they're added. 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost. They're added. What are they added to? They're added to this foundation. These guys who've learned from Jesus. These guys who've walked with him. They spend day and night listening to these guys who know Jesus, who know what it is to live with Jesus have experienced Jesus. Beloved, we're leaders. It's a leader's morning. You will go through pressures. Sometimes your people won't go through, but for the sake of them. That you can speak out of your experience of his faithfulness. You will sometimes suffer things not for your sake, but for their sake. You'll go through pain and pressure and difficulty for their sake. And once I had a terrible, terrible week waiting for the Sunday I was to preach, and I I couldn't find the word. I couldn't find the way. I was really struggling. I had a terrible, terrible week. I really remember as the week went by, I'm terrified. The Sunday's getting closer. It's our big all-together Sunday. All the congregations come together. It's the big event. And I'm pretty, oh God, I've got nothing. And then suddenly God just opened up a verse from me in the Song of Solomon. About leaning on the beloved. I felt God come so close. I went through real pain that week. And then I preached on the Sunday. 
I've never seen such a line of people waiting for the cassette as we used to do in those days. You couldn't hardly get out of the place because so many people. And I suddenly realized why I'd been through that week. I suddenly realized why I felt so difficult. Life was so tough. And it was so, I thought, man, I served, I fed this flock like I don't normally feed them. Because I've been through something for their sake. That's what I understand to be the case now. You will go through things that are not just for your sake, but because you're a shepherd of sheep. And God will put you through things for their sake. And he's shaping you. And he wants you courageous and strong. He wants to build people on. He wants to build a new community here in Cape Town and beyond. He wants a people who trust God. That's the root. He wants a people who, whatever they go through, they trust God. So in the workplace, you know, there's economic crisis. What's with you? Well, I trust God. I learned that at church. My pastor taught me. You know, what's happening? Your family, your marriage, your sick aunt, what's happening? No, no, we're trusting God. How did that? No, you learned it. You learned it. We're learning it from leadership that keeps us trusting. So we go through fire sometimes so we can prove him. Let's just close in prayer. Let's, shall we stand to pray? Just draw near to him. Rory, you must feel free if you have anything to say. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your commitment to us, which is so wonderful, so amazing, so contrary to our plans. Lord, we, we could have all sorts of plans for our improvement, our success. You know the stuff that has to be rooted out. You know the gold that has to be tried, tested by fire to your praise, to your glory. And Father, I just ask you in Jesus' name for every man, woman here, sovereign God, win our hearts afresh, win our confidence in you, help us to walk to please you, help us to avoid unbelief, help us to trust you, help us to trust your program. Lord, please impose your program on our lives. Do us good. Bring us through. Lord, make us into women and men of God. Oh, we want to shine for you. We so want to bring you glory. That's our heart's desire, Lord. Many of us have given up maybe very profitable secular jobs. Lord, some of us have said, why did I do that? Because I didn't expect this. I didn't give all that up for this. I could have had more influence there. Lord, I pray, keep us full of courage through the delays, through the program you set us. Lord Jesus, please bless this word to our hearts. Some of us need it now. Some of us may need it next year. But I pray, Lord, let it do us good for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.